Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So here's the deal. I normally would not have done an episode until next Monday, but I just kind of had some time and I had an edited conversation ready to go. And I thought, you know what? I'll just skip the listener question and I'll skip creating the ad for the Patreon and I'll just uh, put this out today. So hopefully that's cool. Um, The ad for the Patreon, I'll tell you right now, is that A bunch of these questions were written by patrons, and I got them from the Facebook group, which is patron only, and they're great questions, and that's one of the benefits of being a patron is you get to help me ask questions a lot of the time. So anyway, um, no question at the end and no ad in the middle. I do have some thoughts in the middle about Jesus' resurrection that are pertinent to my conversation with Carl, so I'll pop in and, and give those notes, and then we'll just go back to his conversation. So here is my guess. Some of you read the title of this episode and you thought, of course, I don't need to believe in a historical Adam and Eve. Others of you read it and thought, wait, what? If there was no real Adam, where do we draw the line? Or how does Christ's you know, work cover sin? If as in Adam sinned and the rest through Christ, whatever, I'm botching that, you know, the whole thing from Paul. Um, that's okay. Either way, wherever you landed on that. This is a question that, for reasons I will talk about with Carl, has become very central in some circles of Christianity and then almost entirely ignored in other circles. 
But I think it's worth thinking about carefully whether or not you are already convinced of its importance. Now, here's an empirical question. How many Christians are focused on this issue and what are the consequences of that? Well, there is some data already out there to help us answer that question. Here is some data from the Barna Group. You've heard me mention them before. Um, Evangelical-ish uh, public polling, um, polling and, and survey company in California. They surveyed evangelical or rather Protestant senior pastors in 2012. So this is seven years ago, but this is some of the most recent data we've got. In 2012, 54% of Protestant senior pastors believed in young earth creationism. By contrast, 18% professed a belief in theistic evolution. So that's like three times different. So three times as many young earthers as theistic evolutionists. Now, over half uh, thought that evolution raised theological problems. And of those people, 61% of them mentioned Adam and Eve specifically. So 58% of pastors who fell under the young earth creationist category agreed that, quote, if you publicly admitted your own doubts about human origins, you feel you would have a lot to lose in your ministry, end quote. So those are real consequences, right? These are people's jobs, the direction of their churches. Um, and, you know, if you, if you agree with me, it's, it's, con it's disconcerting that three times as many pastors, at least in 2012, believed in young earth creationism, which I think is palpably false, uh, over theistic evolution, which I think is really the only option. Um, now, with my guest Carl, we do talk a lot about Adam, of course, but the conversation also meanders naturally to other questions like the physical resurrection of Jesus, how to understand science, and even the problem of evil. And if you're a step a, a step or two ahead of me, then you already know why a discussion of Adam will lead to the problem of evil, but I'll just tease that for now. Now, Carl has a long history with conservative evangelicalism and or fundamentalism, including being fired and having many of his colleagues and friends fired from conservative institutions. He probably has more of an ax to grind with that community than most of my other guests, and I think you'll pick up on that. Um, and I'm not quite so pessimistic or frustrated as he is on a lot of this stuff, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't bring up some really accurate and helpful points. Uh, Carl's microphone, unfortunately, had some problems. I did my best with my audio wizardry, uh, but I can only do so much. So if you can, I would recommend you do not listen to this one in the car where it's noisy. I would listen on headphones if you can, because sometimes the, the high end of his mic cuts out. And if you're in a quiet environment, you'll be fine. But if you're in a loud environment, you might miss some stuff. Um, so that's my recommendation. Uh, but the conversation's rad. Carl Guyberson is actually a physicist, but he's been involved in faith and science conversations at a very high level for decades. So he's competent to talk about this. He is currently a professor at Stonehill College. And now we'll get into it, to my conversation with Carl Guyberson. Carl, can you give us a brief outline of your own faith story? Yeah, I was raised in a uh, conservative, fundamentalist, Baptist parsonage. My dad was a uh, country preacher who pastored several rural churches. At one point, he pastored four all at the same time. Probably 
Uh, half of the people that I went to church with didn't have high school diplomas. Very few had a college degree, if any. Very, very simple rural rural people. Uh, this was in Canada. So the fundamentalism there was not kind of hard-edged. The culture wars in Canada are much different than they are here in the States. So I, I have nothing but kind of fond memories of the people that I worshipped with and the churches that I was a part of. And I was, I was very active, a leader in the youth group. I played in a singing group and used to speak occasionally. So it was a, it was a very nice, nurturing, spiritual environment, but it was intellectually a completely fundamentalist, biblical, literalist, theological context. And that wasn't going to last for you, given your interests. So briefly, can you give us that progression out of that into where you are now? Yeah, so I was very interested in in, in theology and in science, and I got kind of captured by the creationist worldview as a teenager and went off to college at Eastern Nazarene College just outside Boston, intending to kind of study to become a creationist crusader. I had bought into the argument of Henry Morris and others that evolution is the primary way that the devil destroys faith in God, and I was going to fight back against that. I studied physics and math, uh, and partway through my sophomore year, my fundamentalism just kind of all came crumbling down around me. One of the key things that I've come to understand kind of really at an increasingly deeper level as as I've worked in this area is is that fundamentalism requires an elaborate system by which you can legitimately reject almost all of science. And it requires a lot of effort to to come up with arguments why most of contemporary science is wrong. And if you study science, you begin to realize that it just isn't all wrong. And you develop kind of heroes in the scientific community. I mean, I became very interested in people like Richard Feynman, Albert Einstein, Murray Gelman, and so on, giants in physics. And, and I began to realize that it just was very implausible to suppose that they were a part of some conspiracy to hide the fact that the true picture of the world comes out of Genesis and not from the scientific community. So, yeah. I want to be clear what we are talking about when we talk about fundamentalism here to make sure that we're using the term the same way. When I think of fundamentalism, I think of it as meaning any subset of a religious group that says we have this text, this text is basically dictated and perfect, and it is such a high source of knowledge of such epistemological certainty that anything else in the world has to be filtered through claims that this text makes, and if they conflict, the text is right, and the other claims are wrong no matter what. Is that sort of your definition? Yeah, that's pretty much how I would have defined it myself. I, You know, you use kind of kinder, gentler language, but that's basically it. I'm known for my kind and gentle language. So you you get into the Adam question because you get into the larger faith and science question. Is that right? When I came back to my alma mater, Eastern Nazarene College, to, as a professor, I encountered a lot of students that were in the same mode that I was in when I arrived there as a freshman, and I was kind of impassioned to to try to help them and see whether I could find ways to help them to get out of that fundamentalism without having uh, prices of faith. What I ended up kind of 
discovering. And, and, and again, this was something that just the more I explored this, the more I realized that this was the foundational question. But the real issue around evolution is not the age of the earth. It's not the origin of species. It isn't really the origin of, of, of human beings. So those, those are all points of, of controversy. But the real issue is the origin of sin. And uh, thoughtful students would very quickly start asking questions about Adam and Eve and, and how does Christianity work if we don't have Adam and Eve and the fall and the original perfect creation and so on. That really is the the tipping point. Uh, and so I ended up, you know, after writing a lot of books about a lot of other things, deciding that I wanted to do a book about Adam just so that I could kind of get a clearer picture of how Adam had come to occupy such a central place in the Christian theological world. Yeah, and so the book is called Saving the Original Sinner. I have a little joke in here, though, that like, you're not saving him, you're like ruining him for all of us, right? Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much it. This, this, the saving is uh, what, I've, what I'm pushing back against, the heroic efforts that people have made to try to salvage some kind of a historical atom even as the evidence became you know, increasingly uh, more compelling that he wasn't a real uh, historical character. Yeah. And and we're going to we're going to get to all of that, but I love how you open your book describing a trip you took to the Creation Museum. And in particular there is this bittersweet moment where you're standing and looking at the Adam and Eve displays, these like happy, peaceful herbivores who have no idea that there is anything like sickness, disease, or death. There's friendly dinosaurs looking over their shoulders. And you wrote that you wish that this story could still be true for you. And as I was reading it, I also got emotional. There's something really powerful, I think, about like a beatific vision like that of sometime in the past, perhaps that will be recovered in the future in a really similar way. Why do you think there is so much power there and, and why was it to you kind of only bittersweet and not only bitter or only sweet? I mean, the human condition has been one of enormous suffering, just enormous suffering. And I think often of the, the many, many millennia in which infant mortality kind of ran around 50% and just having a baby was a very, very dangerous thing and, and how that was just a, a kind of a regular part of life, you know, in the same way that you know, today we get colds or we need fillings or other things that we don't like. I mean, they would have babies that died. And I think at some level, we want to believe that the world really isn't like that, that somehow the horror that we confront every day is a part of human existence doesn't belong there. A lot of the mythologies that that, that we have, whether, whether biblical or just the folk theologies that emerge even today, are kind of based on that wish that the world that we confront just isn't quite as bad as it appears. You know, I used to give my wife a hard time because the kind of like no death at all before the fall, no animal death before Adam and Eve sinned, was one of those beliefs of hers that like stuck around kind of longer than some of the other beliefs that might have been correlated with it. And so I gave her a hard time about that because the evidence was so strong against it. But at the same time, I understood it because it has incredible psychological appeal. And, and it also even has theological appeal. You know, those of us who are practicing Christians, we do experience this God of love. 
And we think, well, the God I know, you know, probably wouldn't let it be like this. That maybe is like the central difficult question for me right now in my faith is like, how do I reconcile the loving God I experience with like the vast amount of suffering in the world? And this is a really tidy explanation that just unfortunately has no evidence to back it up. It, it's also a mode of explanation, which I think uh, that unless unless you're kind of raised on it, you can't make sense of it. And I mean, I, I used to be very critical of Richard Dawkins when he would kind of read the Old Testament in a sort of simplistic way and so on. But the, as, as I've kind of come to think about this a little bit more, you know, the idea that all the suffering that we experience is the result of some decisions made in the Middle East a few thousand years ago by the first two humans. I mean, that really isn't much of an explanation. And I mean, that story emerged at a time when it was, it was more normal to kind of think of kind of tribal unity and the sins of the fathers being visited on the children and families being cursed and things being handed down patriarchally and so on. And I mean, we don't live in that world today. And so, so even, even if there weren't scientific issues with it, I mean, for me, the the moral and theological problems of trying to account for all of the bad stuff in the world as the consequences of Adam and Eve seems very far-fetched. One thing that I think people get wrong coming from the right is that those of us further on the left are really trying to accommodate the world and secular society, and so we adjust our theology accordingly. But you have this great little phrase toward the end of this section about the Adam and Eve display, where you say, Adam fades reluctantly from the canvas of one's theology, despite one's efforts to keep him there, not because of one's efforts to keep him there. And I just love that. And I wonder if you could maybe just expand on that a bit. When Adam disappears, he takes a lot with him this vision of the human species as being kind of angelic and godlike and transcendent spiritually and morally and, and even biologically and so on. And the idea of, of this perfect human being that we can kind of imagine that we're descended from, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it's sort of inspirational. And we, we have a tendency both theologically, but also, you know, politically and even in our families to kind of look back at at individuals from the past and, and try to kind of ride on the coattails of their greatness. And I, mean, I often talk in my classes to help the students understand this point about, about George Washington and, and how we have this story about him risking, you know, a whipping from his father by admitting that he chopped down a cherry tree and so on. And we tell that story because that's how we think about sort of the moral pedigree of the country, that the father of the nation was a ruthlessly honest person. And and then you try and use that vision to elevate yourself and to kind of imagine the best you can be. That I think that's just such a universal part of the of being human to want to think that way. And, and and so the Adam story is really, I mean, it's the greatest myth of all. I mean, it, it trumps every other myth that you can possibly imagine. The idea of a, of, a, of a man so perfect that he could, 
you know, spontaneously come up with names for all the animals on the planet. You know, a man that was visited in the cool of the evening by God who came down from heaven to, to walk with him in the Garden of Eden. That's a, a, a Superman at the one level, but it's also a man. And, and if, if he's a member of our species, then what a great species. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll get to some more of the, the psychology of that as we go along. But I want to start with kind of an inventory. So what are all the basic options for how we might understand Adam? Let's start with he's a historical figure as described in the text all the way to, you know, whatever the, the last point is. Can you walk us through those options? The traditional view that, you know, he lived in the Middle East six to 10,000 years ago, and uh, he was the husband of Eve and father of Cain, Abel, and Seth, and so on. Once it became apparent that the earth was much older and that human beings originated in Africa, like that story was kind of pushed back and made a little bit vaguer. And so Adam becomes in, in that scenario, perhaps a, a representative of a group, or perhaps he becomes the first human selected by God to be in a relationship, but not necessarily the first biological human. Maybe the story of the implanting of the image of God is a testimony to that sort of uh, overture that God made to enter into a relationship with, uh, with humans for the first time. Some people have speculated that maybe Adam should be understood as a Neolithic farmer and some people have enlarged the Garden of Eden to reach down into Africa and so on. I mean, the geography of the place is, is somewhat ambiguous in Genesis. And then kind of relax the historicity altogether and kind of think of Adam as a, as a kind of everyman. When Paul would talk about in Adam, we all sin, that's just the human condition. But within all of those options, you still retain something that represents a historical fall. And that's kind of the fault line that either because human beings don't have a moral sense yet, or because the creation is physically different, or because God has not entered into relationship with the human race, you, you have this period when there just isn't sin in the world. And that comes in at a certain point as an interloper. And I think that's a key part of the story that like sin wasn't intended to be a part of the creation and all the suffering that goes with it but it just arose at a certain point in time and and then of course the you know the view which i think science pushes us toward really is that is that there just really isn't any historical sensibility whatsoever in the story of adam and and it's something that must must really be recast as a very traditional sort of myth, you know, something that illuminates the human condition. But just like George Washington and his childhood honesty, it doesn't have any basis, in fact, uh, of any sort. Yeah. And so that last that last version would say, look, there's many things about this story that like speak theological truth. You know, the the Israelite origin of humans account talks about sin. It talks about, you know, like a desire for knowledge, maybe knowledge beyond what we can handle. It talks about, you know, with Cain and Abel, you've got sort of murder, you have sacrifice to God, unwillingness to sacrifice, you know, envy, all this stuff, but relaxing on the, there was a momentary fall where things went from 
uh, you know, Edenic, idyllic to non-Edenic, non-idyllic. But uh, actually, people might be surprised, like how many really influential and and fairly conservative Christian theologians have have held this view. My understanding is that C.S. Lewis held this view. Alistair McGrath, who's a philosopher and apologist. Do you think that people underestimate the the sort of Christian heavy hitters that actually take the view that it is it is theologically and mythically true, but not there's there's no historical dimension? Yeah, I think it's one of the curious features of American fundamentalism that they seem for the most part to be unable to recognize that the the British Christians that they celebrate, if they were actually living in America and preaching in pulpits here, that they would be condemned as as heretics. <laughs> I mean, C.S. Lewis is, I mean, he's certainly a profound Christian thinker, but he had no time for, for you know, biblical literalism when it came to the story of Adam and Eve. Yeah. So I want to get to the scientific evidence, but before we do that, there is evidence in the text itself, right, for this final category of mythically true, theologically true, but not historically true. What is the evidence in the text itself? I mean, there's a lot of peculiarities in in that story. And the more you read it and look at it closely, the more you think like if, you know, if, if the writer of this text was intending us to read it literally, he sure sort of shrouded that intention in a lot of rhetorical ambiguity. And so, I mean, I would just point to things like the Hebrew meaning of the word Adam. I mean, it, the the word just means man. It's not a name that people would have recognized as the name of a person. And Eve means mother of all living. You've got the juxtaposition of, of two creation stories that are really difficult to reconcile. And it seems very odd that the the editors of the Pentateuch would have taken the first creation story and the second creation story and just placed them side by side and left it, you know, as the physics books say, as an exercise to the reader to show how these can be squared. To take maybe the most obvious example, like like imagine what has to happen on day six when humans are, are created, that if you put the two stories together, Adam is created first, and then God brings all the animals on the planet to him, and he names every one of them. And in the in the Hebrew setting, this would mean he, he gave each one of them a name that was appropriate to its character. He doesn't just make up random names, right? So Adam gets an insight into the nature of every single living thing and gives them all a name. And then he notices that every one of them that showed up came with a mate. And he wonders, how come I'm the only living creature without a mate? And he starts to think this isn't fair. And he inquires to God, why don't I have a mate? And so God says, okay, fair enough. I'll make you a mate. So he puts him to sleep, takes a piece of his side and creates Eve, right? And and so all of this happens in one day. You have right. to imagine this long line of animals, several miles long, running at great speed past Adam. And he's just going, uh, bear, chimp, uh, uh, trout, uh, salmon, eagle. Robin and and so on, just as fast as he can to yeah. get the <laughs> named in time. It's it's crazy. I asked my patrons for questions, and I got a bunch of really interesting questions on this topic as I thought I would. I I have a chunk of them at the end that we'll get through as many of those as we can if we have time. But I also had some that seemed to fit better in the kind of scope of the conversation as we go. So I'll I'll note when these are patron questions, and and here's the first one: Could the story of of the of the garden? 
be a metaphor for the Babylonian exile? And and why isn't there more in Scripture about returning to Eden? Well, I mean, that's a very interesting question about why the why that story, which is so central, yeah, in the Christian kind of version of things, why it seems to be completely missing from the Jewish <laughs> self understanding that emerges yeah. there. So, uh, I mean, a lot of scholars, Pete Enns, who I respect a lot. I mean, this is kind of his view that this is really what we're talking about that Adam is Israel and Adam's sin is Israel not following God and the curse and the punishment were the children of Israel losing their promised land and going into captivity in Babylonia and so on. So I mean I think that's a very defensible explanation but it but it requires that you kind of enter into a mythological age when people thought about the past in those terms. And that's so foreign to us. And we're so unwilling to bring scholarship to bear on these questions that we just, as Ken Ham says, we just read it, right? We don't interpret it, we just read it. And when we just read it, then that certainly doesn't kind of jump out of the text. You've got to read it with a very sophisticated literary lens. Paul basically is in this community of really wide-ranging and creative reinterpretation of the early stories of Judaism, you know, basically the, the stories in the Torah, that we just don't really recognize today because we don't read that literature, first of all. We're not, we, we're not very good at steeping ourselves in Second Temple Judaism, which we might forgive us for not being good at that. But like some of what Paul does with Adam makes more sense given that context. Like what else should we know about that intertestamental period and that second temple Judaism, that, that interpretive context to, before we get to Paul himself, that will help us understand what Paul is going to do with Adam. Pete Enns wrote a book called uh, Inspiration and Incarnation that ultimately got him fired from a fundamentalist seminary. And the subtitle of the book was Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. And, and he points out in that book in a way that is, is really quite clear and can only be denied by kind of sticking your literary head in the sand, that that the way that the New Testament writers used the Old Testament was, to put it mildly, very, very creative. Turning the Old Testament into a set of books that served new purposes for which they weren't originally written, that the in an attempt to make this or that event of the present authoritative and significant, the New Testament writers would would distort and misrepresent. They would misquote, you know, Isaiah, misquote the Psalms and so on to make some point about Jesus. And fundamentalists, I think, biblical literature, they, they don't understand it. I mean, I mean the whole question of, of Mary's virginity, I mean, the the passage in Isaiah that's being quoted is doesn't say that a virgin shall conceive. You know, it says a young woman shall conceive. And there's a Hebrew word for virgin, and that's not the word that is used there. You know, so so this this claim that Mary was a virgin based on a biblical prophecy is is a misquote of Isaiah. I mean, how do we understand that? I mean, people find that very offensive to to say that. But I mean, if if Isaiah meant that a virgin would conceive, which is a, which is, I mean, that's an extraordinary thing, right? I mean, if Isaiah says a virgin will conceive, he's saying, oh, a, a dramatic miracle outside the laws of nature is going to occur. If Isaiah says a young woman shall conceive, well, that happens all the time. Right. So Isaiah describes a very ordinary event. It strikes me that we have a couple options there. We can either say 
these guys had an axe to grind, an agenda, and God is not in that at all because God would never want anybody to misquote another writer. Then there's another option which says, well, yeah, they're, they, they have this really creative and not strictly speaking, you know, accurate, at least not accurate to the author's intention way of interpreting the text, but that maybe the author's intention is not the most important thing about a text. So that's another option. And then a, maybe an overlapping option would be God is perfectly fine with the fact that they did this because there are just these little seeds that are not super explicit in the Jewish scripture that do point sort of in a not super clear way toward the kind of Messiah that Jesus was going to be. But also those those Jews, those Israelites didn't quite understand what it was that the Messiah would be. And so they're not going to totally get it right anyway. So, I mean, there, there's there's sort of ways to think about this. You, It does seem like we're probably, we can't say the Bible is inerrant, and also the only thing that matters about a text is what the author intended. We're going to have a problem there because the New Testament writers are misquoting what the authors intended of the Old Testament. But there's other ways, like the way that Augustine or Origen would have thought about scripture like this is there's the analogical mode, there's you know, there's all kinds of interpretations, and, and maybe the writer of Isaiah couldn't envision that this would be fulfilled as a virgin and not just a young woman. You know what I'm saying? Yes. We find, for example, that in the first century, there are various people who are born of virgins. There are lots of great individuals who have supernatural birth stories. If you place the New Testament stories alongside other literature from the period and you say, oh, okay, so one of the ways that a great individual is recognized is by developing uh, great and exciting birth stories that uh, attend their arrival. If we ask the question, okay, if if Jesus was indeed divine and he appeared in first century Palestine, how would his contemporaries talk about him? And they would talk about him in exactly the way that they did. Yeah, and so that's, in, in a sense, it's even a kind of evidence for the resurrection. It's an evidence for the origins of the church as being basically based out of this personal experience with Jesus of Nazareth and then the experience of his death and resurrection as being so powerful that they needed to find language to describe it. And and that's where fundamentalism, I think, gets it wrong is, well, we got to make sure that all these details are right because we need this inerrant, verbally inspired book that's perfect source of knowledge. But it's that's kind of then go, going the wrong way around. That's not – the point is not that once people experience the risen Christ – that God set them to task of writing a perfect book. You know, it's like they just started a religion because they had this thing happen to them. And that is the religion that we are a part of now. Yes. the I mean, the difficulty, though, and if, if I were to kind of uh, step into the shoes of the fundamentalists and kind of push back on that, there are other stories of resurrections. And there are stories of people that went and were dead for three days and rose on the third day and so on like that. And so we have to decide, well, like – what are we going to do about the fact that the resurrection story that we associate with Jesus is not unique? Now, we can suppose, as some you know, more liberal Christians would, that, that Jesus' message and personality and influence on his followers was so dramatic and so real that even after he died, that he still was present with them in some kind of extraordinary way. And the resurrection stories 
that happened to be the way they expressed that. That was the only way they could imagine the the present reality of Jesus, who still seemed to be with them, was that he really didn't die. He came back to life and, and is still alive and, and is with us there. And so, so the resurrection stories become sort of like the angelic choir singing to the shepherds. I mean, there's there's stories which have a meaning, but they're not based in history. But there's a lot of people who would say, well, if we don't have Jesus rising from the dead, then we don't have Christianity at all. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not really making that point that the, the those kind of liberal Protestants would make. I'm more saying there is this resurrection event which kicks off Christianity, and then as a result of that resurrection event, we have this literature. They have to start thinking about what just happened. How to understand who Jesus was and and like combing back through their memory of their time with him for clues as to how this could have happened. And the point is, is the resurrection experience. That's the point. The point is not that the text then becomes a perfect guide to all of that. And so yeah. it's just a, a, re, a way of saying we don't necessarily need to be so concerned with the fact that they're misquoting or, because they're just they're kind of scrambling. They're they're like we had this incredible thing happen and it was so incredible that it started the world's largest religion we have to describe it in some way and that there's something beautiful about that and even even in the way that like you know eyewitness accounts are not trustworthy if they're exact you know it's it's kind of like i don't i don't mean to make like a weird apologetics argument here i'm just i'm just saying that like yeah they're they're kind of messy they're they're figuring it out as they go which is just sort of points to the fact that it was such a profound thing that happened. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, for me, the, the, the kind of take home message from all of that is that we need way more intellectual humility when it comes to kind of drawing fences around doctrines and planting our flag with historical episodes and so on. And we need to be much more tolerant. I think all of the things that we're talking about kind of envelop the first century events in a kind of shroud of mystery and uncertainty. And and I, I think we should be much more tolerant of people who have readings that are different than the one that we might prefer. For the record, just want to jump in here mid-conversation with Carl and mention that I am not as convinced as he is that stories of figures dying and rising three days later were particularly common, nor that it necessarily matters to early Christianity. Um, I'm sure I haven't read as much as he has on this. But my understanding is that a lot of that stuff has been blown out of proportion um, by some new atheist authors. But I do take his point, and I agree with him, that everything surrounding the resurrection from our vantage point today is fundamentally mysterious. And we should be careful not to remove people from the global Christian fellowship based on their views on this question. Uh, And this is why I like to say that the only thing required to make one a Christian is to confess that Jesus is Lord. People might mean a variety of things by that phrase, but if they can say Jesus is Lord in some meaningful way, then I think they're in. Okay, enough of that. Back to the conversation with Carl. So, Carl, you write that Paul is the most important interpreter of Adam. I think that's maybe obvious, but why do you say that specifically? And what does Paul ultimately conclude about Adam? Well, Paul ties Adam to Jesus in a way that they kind of rise and fall together. And I think it's that union of 
sort of the first man and the second man that creates the heroic efforts that I talk about in my book to, to save Adam, because it's very hard for people to imagine what the point was of Jesus if he wasn't repairing the damage done by Adam. So I think that Adam, for Paul, plays a very, very central theological role that that I frankly don't think evangelicals are going to be able to deal with. I mean, I used to be more optimistic about this, but I, I don't think evangelical theology will ever be able to move away from a literal Adam because of the way that Paul tied Adam's fall to uh, to Christ's atonement. And he does this in a, in a couple verses, right? I mean, it's not a, it's not a ton of ink, but it's a it's a really tight line that Paul seems to draw. You know, as in as in one all sinned, as in another all will be made right. I mean, he's he's really hammering this distinction. Say a little bit more about the theological move that Paul's making there. I mean, unfortunately, Paul doesn't kind of sit down and write a treatise on theology. Right. He writes the letters. And every letter is kind of motivated by a particular issue among some early church group, and the letter is meant to address that particular problem. And so Paul doesn't – he doesn't really write as if he's trying to create the church and influence billions of people in the millennia to follow. So – in in the context of, of writing those letters, I mean, he he's looking he's looking for some extraordinary justification for what Jesus did. The explanation that that Adam sinned and brought down not just all of the human race but all of creation. That's why Jesus had to die because the the whole glorious created order that God made perfect was all wrecked by this guy, Adam. And that's why the Son of God needed to be crucified as a way to atone for Adam's sin and to undo all of that damage. And so the that sort of traditional Christian worldview that involves creation, fall, redemption, that kind of those three events, I mean, that just becomes cemented, I think, in in the in the kind of theological frameworks that that really all Christian traditions and splintered denominations and so on. I mean, they all they all have some version of the creation fall redemption story, and it's really tough to see exactly how that works if you don't have Adam in there. Uh, it's tough to see where that fall is. Although we should mention that, like for instance, East, Eastern Orthodox Christians have had very little trouble with no historical Adam because they don't think of original sin, which we're going to get to. They don't think of original sin the way that Augustine thought of it. They call it ancestral sin. Sometimes it's just the idea that like everybody sins. If you are a human being, you will sin. It's going to happen. And they don't have the same emphasis, certainly not in reformed Protestant circles. Yes. And they're, I mean, there's an, there's enormous creativity and flexibility and latitude in especially in the first few centuries, as, as people are trying to make sense of these things. It's kind of after we get past Augustine that we get a kind of narrowing down of the range of possibilities that were available, at least to the Western church. But but there were, I mean, there were people who thought that, you know, that it's just not possible to not sin. And humans have always been that way. And like Adam, of course, committed the first sin because he was the first man. And the whole point of the story of Adam is that even even though he's the first man and, you know, you, you can't say that, well, 
he was born into a sinful society that corrupted him or some other person convinced him to sin or something like that. I mean, here he is. He's the perfect man created with a perfect wife. He's in the Garden of Eden. And what does he do? Well, he sins, right? And it's just that's kind of the story of Adam as, as every man. It's just we can't escape our human nature. What it means to be human, and that all seems to be fine. And there, there's not even there. I feel like we shouldn't have a problem these days with saying something like that. I, I mean, that's I, we shouldn't have. I'm being a little bit uh, dramatic, but there is this other issue, and you, you've been alluding to it, which is like, but if human sin did not cause the suffering of the of the rest of the world. Well, then we have a bigger problem to deal with, right? We have a bigger theodicy problem. We have a bigger problem of evil to deal with here. And so that is a, that's a big one. I mean, because it's one thing to say, well, yeah, everybody sins. Anybody with enough consciousness and brain power and ability to cast vision into the future will then make decisions that help themselves and hurt other people, you know, at the expense of other people, turn people into uh, things rather than objects. Uh, or sub- objects rather than subjects. But it's another thing <laughs> to look at tsunamis and, you know, cruelty that animals inflict on each other and you know, all that kind of stuff. And if we can't give, if we can't lay that at the feet of Adam, then we have to lay it at the feet of God. Is that what we're saying? Yes. Now, there are the Odysseys and so on that that uh, that deal with that but i think yeah we, yes including a previous episode of this podcast <laughs> yeah we have to say okay why did god create a world where tsunamis were possible and and so on and then we have you know then we have the question that i mean leibniz and others you know wrestled with it i mean is this the best of all possible worlds because god wouldn't create any other one and you know so how do we make sense of a world where those kind of things can can happen but i don't think that the apologetic response to that is particularly difficult. I sometimes will ask students to kind of imagine that you're in the Garden of Eden and you've got, you know, everything is perfect and you have, you know, rabbits scampering and squirrels in the trees chattering and, and so on and, and streams going by. And, and is, it, is it not possible for a squirrel to fall out of a tree and drown? Right. And so if you say, well, if it's not possible that that would happen, well, what, like, what kind of a world is this? You know, where a Whereas a creature falls out of a tree into a stream or over a cliff or a rock rolls down or a tree falls over and someone's going to be killed. And, you know, and somehow the laws of physics mysteriously change ever so briefly. And instead of drowning, you just float on the surface to the shore and the rock, instead of rolling down and crushing you, is diverted and... And so on. I mean, it's 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 not an imaginable orderly world, and so it just seems that if you were going to create an orderly world, then you're going to have tsunamis in it, and you know, and and, it's, and a tsunami by itself is not an evil thing. I mean, there are there's weather on Mars, and there's weather on Venus, and so on, and no one thinks, oh, those storms that Venus has, like that's so evil, right? right? I mean, it's not, right? And, you know, so, I mean, we happen to live in the wrong place and the tsunami drowns us, right? We happen to live in the wrong place and the earthquake kills us. Or we're in the wrong building and the shooter comes in and kills us and so on. I mean, there's just all kinds of of things that aren't built into the natural order that just occur because the nature is set up in such a way that God doesn't swoop in every time something unfortunate is about to occur. Right. 
there's a good patron question that we should ask before we move past Paul uh, or this initial inquiry into Paul. How might we understand the notion of Christ as the second Adam if Adam and Eve were not historical beings? Do you have any thoughts on that? This, again, is is a case where I I really don't think the response needs to be as complicated as, as people make it. It's, it seems to me that that the issue is not where sin got started, but rather that sin exists. And as long as we recognize that human beings are sinful, does it really matter exactly how we became sinful? And again, if, if we were to make an analogy, I mean, if, if, if you're sick and you have Ebola, right, and so the doctors are heroically working on you to make sure that you don't die from Ebola, I mean, we would find it very peculiar if they were obsessed with trying to figure out who did you get Ebola from, right? I mean, that yeah. would seem misguided. The fact that you have Ebola is what matters. In terms of, of what Christ did, now, now there's, a, you know, Christian theology is, is larger than just what Christ did. There's the doctrine of creation and all these other things as well. So those have to be taken on board. But, but if we're trying to just understand Christ in some sense— all it seems to me we need is some kind of a confidence that human beings need salvation in some sense. And there's lots of ways to understand that with evolution, like you were saying earlier, that I mean, human beings are thinking, planning creatures. You're going to be looking ahead and saying, oh, I want to be, I want to be rich. I want to be president. I want to be this or that. And so you do things that are exploitive of other people, and you shouldn't have done that. And it just, I mean, as C.K. Chesterton said, original sin is the only Christian doctrine that's empirically verifiable, right? I mean, we don't we don't have to have a historical argument for that. All we have to do is, you know, listen to Donald Trump for a few minutes. So let's talk about original sin a little bit. I had a patron ask a question that might be a good way to get into it. How and when did original sin become a rational belief to hold? A rational belief to hold. I, I think what they mean is just like, where does this idea come from? Because maybe it seems a little silly. At least the 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 strict Augustinian version where sin is passed through semen into another person, you know, as you give birth. That is obvious. That's not a view that people can really take seriously if they think about it today, uh, just because of what we know about medicine that Augustine didn't know. So maybe that's the one that he's like, where did that come from? But there's, of course, other versions of original sin that are not so problematic. Augustine had this deep interiority where he kind of like he sort of looked within himself and he saw a darkness there that was so great and so extraordinary that he just couldn't imagine that it just happened to be there, that it, it had to come from some terrible source. I mean, he felt that it was, in some sense, like foreign to him. I mean, he he had his will, and he wanted to be able to control himself. And I mean, he struggled a lot, as you know, with with sexual temptation, and usually unsuccessfully. And I mean, he was he was very devastated by his own inability to live a moral life, and so he he ne- he needed to have some kind of you know powerful reason why he was such a bad person, why he had so much evil inside him. And, you know, the story of the fall that we, we, we get this horrible part of our nature from, from this event in the past. I mean, that, that kind of works in a mythological sense to account for Augustine's 
personal struggles. But uh, I mean, Augustine had contemporaries that didn't struggle in the same way, and they didn't read the story of Adam differently. But they they didn't win. <laughs> he, he won yeah. the day. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting though. We might cut him a little bit of slack because you know when we talk about sin now, we know so many different things about the physical world than Augustine knew. So Augustine had no reason to question the idea that basically the world began a couple weeks before Adam sinned, you know, a month or two, right? Like he, he had no other information that would challenge that. That seemed to be the best explanation. And every single educated person in his day would have assumed that that was true. So, but when we talk about it now, we go, well, this, you know, selfishness, this resource hoarding, whatever is so strong in people. We turn to things like evolutionary psychology. We turn to things like, is there something about finitude in general that makes it so even the plants are competing for the sun, you know, the sunlight. I mean, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to draw a correlation between human selfishness and plants, that's really similar given the knowledge that you have now living in the 21st century about geological time scales, that is very similar to Augustine going, it's got to be way back at the beginning. There's got to be something fundamental from the beginning that is affecting all of this. We're essentially making a very similar form of the argument. It's just updated empirically. Yeah, I think that's kind of where contemporary Christianity needs to go to kind of reformulate the the core doctrines and kind of recognize that there's a there's a process that we understand very well in nature it leads to exactly the same sorts of things that augustine was talking about and i i think an evolutionary psychologist would say that yeah i mean augustine's understanding of himself was indeed very accurate very insightful people have talked about how you know his confessions is kind of the first encounter that anybody ever had with what we call depth psychology today and so on. So, I mean, he, he, he thought deeply and openly about his own human nature and he saw things there that he explained in the categories of his day. And today, as you mentioned, we would use evolutionary psychology instead of the fall to account for them. But, but we end up at the same place. And uh, we, the Nobel laureate Christian Deneuve has written this very interesting book called the genetics of original sin. And, you know, he, he writes as a non-believer, but he opens his book by pointing out that Christian theology got this thing right, that they they detected in human nature a fundamental flaw in our souls, and that we can understand that now as, as the genetic inheritance from a million years of evolution. So maybe we can just wrap this up with uh, this question from a patron, wrap up this section. How does the fall fit into non-literal readings of Adam and Eve. I mean, we're starting to we're starting to talk about that. The, the problem is if you think you need a perfect situation, then an actual fall and then the situation we're in now, you're not going to get that in a non-literal reading. But maybe you don't need that. I mean, if the fall is just to say we live in a fallen world, uh then I think there's pretty fucking ample evidence that we live in a fallen world and and that's the world that Christ comes to redeem. So, I mean, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's the key point there. But I think that I think the challenge though is that we have a simplistic notion of uh of text either telling 
literal truths or they're lying to us and that we can't get real truth from fiction. If we understand a little bit about how mythology works, that I mean, mytholo mythology arises when, when somebody looks at the world and says like, like, wow, that's just a really peculiar feature of the world. You know, the challenge of childbirth. Why is that so challenging? So many people die when they're giving birth. Why is that, right? And the mythological way of understanding that is to, to find a story, an origin story. Well, once upon a time, such and such happened, and that's why childbirth is so dangerous today. And so we detect in human nature a fundamental flaw, and we say, wow, like that's really strange that like no matter how hard we try, we, we're pathologically selfish, and we just have these we have these self-destructive tendencies where we, you know, sometimes ruin our own lives by making irresponsible decisions, we ruin the lives of other people. Sometimes we kill people or unfaithful to our partners and, I mean, all kinds of things. Why do we do such things, right? This is really bizarre that, that this is such a persistent problem for us and we need a story, right? So the story of the fall is a, is a, it's a, it's a good myth about an important part of human nature. And rather than sort of agonizing over whether the story can be of any value without being historically accurate, we should be marveling at the deep insights of the people that developed the story and, and sort of nurtured it through history and, and turned it into the central insight into human nature that it is today. Yeah, totally. To, to say it is myth is not to say it is not inspired. Myth can be as inspired. Just, you know, Job might be a myth. It's still inspired. It's still in the Bible. Jesus told parables. We believe those are inspired. You know, yeah. it's it's a it's a literary genre question. It's not necessarily a question of inspiration or non-inspiration. Yeah, I mean, we would we would find it very eccentric if someone insisted that like the prodigal son had to actually be a real person, and if right. you were to suggest otherwise, that somehow you've sort of destroyed the teaching of Jesus. So we have sort of addressed this theological question of it seems possible, and we haven't done it totally justice. I'm sure we could do multiple episodes just on this question of like, can we still get the gospel without the original sinner of Adam? And we, we've sort of addressed that, that like what you don't need an original sinner in order for Jesus to defeat sin and death. You just need sin and death for Jesus to defeat sin and death, um, theologically speaking. But let's get to the science a bit, uh, because at the end of the day, Carl, for you and I and many others, it doesn't really matter how strong of a theological argument one can marshal in defense of Paul's understanding or some interpretation of Paul's understanding. The scientific evidence is just not there. What is the evidence against a historical Adam and just how conclusive is that evidence? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's as conclusive as like, is evolution true or false? Yeah. Uh, and it's closely related to that question. I think the, the, the plausibility of all human genes having existed in just two people 6,000 years ago and that limited set of genes turning into the broad range of genes that we have today in the human population. I mean, that's not possible based on the way genes behave. And, and that problem is exacerbated by then trying to figure out, well, 
we have the story of the flood with Noah and his family. And I mean, that puts all human genes in this one family 4,000 years ago. So so those those stories don't match up with what we know about genes. Human beings were around long before any reasonable genealogy would locate Adam and Eve in history. I mean, there's a pretty good genealogy that might skip a generation here and there, but you really can't put Adam further back in history than six to 10,000 years there. And so to try to, you know, make that a quarter million is very implausible. Yeah. Uh, the Garden of Eden is in the Middle East. Human beings originated in Africa. I mean, there, there's just so many evidences. A big, I mean, and there's a bit, there's a, you know, a big pile of kind of conciliant lines of thinking that you I mean, you can look at genes, you can look at paleontology. I mean, you can look at the basic story of evolution and ask yourself, well, is, is it possible that at some point in history, an absolutely kind of unique couple appeared and did something? And like, that is a very difficult story to square with, with what we know about evolution. Now, uh, but but today, to be to be clear, the Adam and Eve as representatives of humanity—that particular reading of historical Adam and Eve—the genetic record can't tell us anything about, for instance, that claim. No, but if we're not going to be faithful to Paul's notion of the original Adam, what exactly are we doing? And so I think it's I think it's much more honest to just say, look, Paul believed in the historical Adam and he was wrong. But as Pete Enns has pointed out evangelicals are just not going to go there. You write that there's a sense in which in Christian conservative circles, even among like theology faculty, people who are really educated, there's this sense that science is always changing and they can't really imagine it ever being proven or like really strongly evidenced that so strongly evidenced that we might as well act as if it's proven that we didn't descend from a single pair of humans. What do you think is going on there? Well, the people who make that claim, uh, I mean, Al Mohler, for example, made that claim just very confidently. And he says, oh, well, if, if they tell us this is the settled science of today, wait until tomorrow and it yeah. won't be settled. All right. So, the, I mean, the idea is that if you if there's a if there's a deliverance from science that you don't like, you just reject it and wait for the replacement deliverance and go with that one instead. So there's two there's two fundamental mistakes that that motivate that that way of thinking. I mean, the, the first one is the misunderstanding that science is all about revolutions. Now, if you ask people to name some scientists, like they'll say, "Well, let's see, uh, Albert Einstein, uh, Galileo, Darwin," right? They'll they'll name people like that. So, so the reason why we know their names is because they were revolutionary, but they're exceptional and. Science is not mainly about revolutions. Science is mainly about the steady, slow accumulation of ever more detail that just enlarges and adds additional foundation to the status quo. But that's not interesting. And no headline is ever going to blare out that absolutely no scientific idea was refuted yesterday. I mean, that's right. not new, right? right? But if somebody comes up and says, ooh, conservation of energy turns out not to be true, Right. That's a headline. So so lay people who are familiar only with the kind of headlines of the history of science have this mistaken notion that th there are constantly revolutions and that those revolutions 
occur with with such regularity that if you don't like the science of today, just wait. The second problem is is this notion of proof that science science does not prove anything. It establishes things with an increasingly high degree of certainty. And sometimes, as is the case with the shape of the Earth being round and not flat, and the, the mobility of the Earth being that it's in motion and not stationary, I mean, we, we would say, well, yes, I mean, those things are, are so well established that you'd have to be kind of obstinate and pig-headed not to accept them. But most scientific ideas are just really well established. They're not proven. And so, so the claim that this or that idea is is not proven is isn't just a, a platitude. I mean, yes, scientific ideas are not proven, but it's irrelevant. And the analogy that I like to use with, with people who make these arguments are, is to talk about medical science, that when, when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, you've got a serious tumor on your brain, would you like me to remove it? I mean, you, you say, well, yes, by all means, please do that. Literally putting your life in the hands of medical science at that point, even though if that doctor was being kind of philosophically rigorous, he would say, now, of course, my diagnosis isn't proven. And the science on which I'm going to rely as I do this operation on you is not proven to be true. It's just something that has a compelling amount of evidence. That wouldn't bother you. You'd say, I don't care. I want you to just act as if it is true. Right. And my life. So, I mean, this this is just a very widespread misunderstanding on Main Street. But yet, you know, people like Al Mohler and Ken Ham and so on, I mean, they will talk about how for 2,000 years everybody thought Aristotle was right. He turned out to be wrong. And, and somehow that turns into an argument for how we all think Darwin is right now, but he's going to turn out to be wrong as if there's some sort of automatic replacement of central ideas. So I've got a bunch of patron questions here and we've got a, we have a handful of minutes left and we'll just get through as many of these as we can uh, before we're done. I've got a couple questions on Imago Day, basically. So what are some other ways of thinking of humans as being created in the image of God if the account of the e of Eden and the creation is not historically or literally accurate? We don't have to find a new updated meaning to everything. And so it could be that what is meant by the Imago Dei is something which doesn't have a meaning anymore. Now, I'm not trying to say that's the answer to this question, but some biblical scholars talk about how the created world was sort of like a temple and that God was remote and human beings were God's representatives there. And so like to for, for humans to kind of image God meant that that humans were to kind of represent God in this other setting there, the same way that an emissary might represent a, a leader of some sort uh, there. So, so I don't think it's necessary that we try to figure out exactly what the image of God means. It was a term which before Darwin made some biological sense because human beings were thought to be truly unique and the only creatures that could have a certain type of moral and spiritual uh, insight. And so we could talk about the Imago Dei referring to that special uniqueness. If if we were determined to find some meaning to attach to it, and and I this this would be what would appeal to me. I mean I would say that that to be in the in the image of God would mean to have some understanding of the 
sort of the, the central notion of being genuinely compassionate toward others and to try to love others as God would love them. And so to try to image God in that sense so that somebody like in the way that Jesus says, like, if you, if you've done this for someone who's unfortunate, you, that's the same as if you've done it, done it for me. So, I mean, it, it, in the sense that that notion has meaning to me personally, it would, it would be that I, I would hope that sometimes people would look at a kindness that I've shown and just have a moment and think like, well, okay, that was just a very nice, generous thing that you just did. And in that moment, perhaps to have just seen a glimpse of, of God in my actions. Here's another one that we kind of talked about earlier, but if you have anything to add, feel free. Could the eating of the fruit be read as a metaphor for the development of human consciousness? We've kind of Christianized the story in a lot of ways that make us misread it, I think. But like, if you, if you look at the conversation between the serpent and, and Adam and Eve, like the serpent says, like, like God is trying to exploit you. Like God has this privileged knowledge of right and wrong, and he doesn't want to share that with you. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, and, if you just read the text on its plain sense, God ends up admitting that the serpent was right about that. God ends yeah. up going, they're going to have this knowledge. I better kick them out. Basically, the serpent tells the truth. In the actual story. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I mean, the, the fruit does play that role. I mean, it kind of opens, I, I don't know whether you would say that it's, it's human consciousness at that point, but it, there's some kind of like intellectual awakening that occurs that where Adam and Eve have insights for the first time that they didn't have before, whether or not that's a legitimate reading, I can't say. But in terms of a metaphor, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very provocative metaphor. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. And and this patron writes, this is a question from my fundamentalist side. So acknowledging that. How can we know for sure which Bible story is to be taken literally and which is just an old Jewish fable? There are no disclaimers in Genesis telling us that this shit didn't really happen. Is it just about how much evidence we happen to have regarding the book or story in question? Is it the age of the book? Well, that's why we have biblical scholars. I think one of the problems that fundamentalist Protestants have, and you know, your your patron is admitting he's got that hat on when he asked that question, is that we we don't have a biblical scholar sitting by our side to help us read the text. We just sort of read the text as if as if they were just written yesterday by somebody who looks at the world more or less the way that we do. Yeah. Mythology is usually, it's usually rooted in kind of in the real world in some sense, like there's some real phenomena that it's either based on or some real phenomena that's motivated the quest that led to the development of the myth. Our inability to read mythology is a serious problem, less so for Catholics, but for Protestants, I think that the fact that we tend to kind of think of the Bible as one long book with one author rather than a library, right? I mean, if, if, if you go into a library, I mean, I, I did a piece on the Huffington Post about this and I, you know, I, I talked about the absurdity of, of somebody going into an actual library and, and claiming that, you know, because the characters in the Harry Potter books were fictional, then how could we be sure that the characters in the history books about the Civil War, that they were actually real. 
the Bible is, you know, dozens and dozens of books in three or four different languages, many centuries, different cultures, and so on. And to kind of suppose that we bring this exactly the same hermeneutic to all of them is as absurd as going into a library and and putting, you know, Harry Potter and Abraham Lincoln in the same category, either both real or both fictional. Here's a here's a question I think I know your answer to based on the rest of our conversation. Will the biblical creation story ever be regarded as a beautiful poem by the majority of the church, or will we forever grasp at making it a real life account of the beginning of all things? Yeah, I I don't think we'll ever just see it as beautiful poetry. Unfortunately, you I mean, mean with, I, you mean in Protestantism? Because I think a lot of Catholics would be comfortable with that, and certainly a lot of Orthodox would be comfortable. Yes, and would. Episcopals and stuff. You know, the the problem though, I think, and this is this is kind of getting worse every decade, is that the the way that the Bible talks about women, about homosexuals, about children and slaves. I mean, there's there's so many different places where the worldview of the biblical writers has become so incompatible with the way we look at the world today that it's going to just it's going to be increasingly harder to kind of keep the Bible on the same pedestal where we've had it. And, you know, as, as many feminists have pointed out that there's there's a lot of mischief that's been that been done against women with biblical justification. And I mean, civil rights had to fight against biblical rationalization for the mistreatment of, of blacks and slavery was justified with with the Bible and, and so on. And, and so I think th- those things are just getting increasingly more serious. And so I think, I think it's going to be really, really difficult to, to take a story which contains as much patriarchy. I mean, with, I mean, one of the reasons why women are supposed to be submissive to men is because that's the way God set things up in the garden of Eden. Right. And so, I mean, how, how, how is a, a story that rationalizes such patriarchy, which has cast such a long, dark shadow over so much of humanity for so many centuries. I mean, how, how is that story ever going to be a beautiful story? Mm. I have two more questions for you myself. One is just, I, I'd like, I just want to reiterate, and, and if you have anything to add, feel free to add, that like, it's still really important that we have an understanding of sin or something very much like sin. We're not, the point of this is not to say there's no really sin in the world, what a what a dumb story. God wouldn't be so vent- like there is sin. And and that's the like you mentioned that Nobel Prize winner saying like this is the thing that Christianity Christian theology got right. Francis Spufford calls it human propensity to fuck shit up or something like that. It's there, it's real. And so we don't we're not throwing that out when we question the the genetic you know, provenance of humanity through one original pair, right? Right. No, absolutely. In the same way, I mean, I, I don't know whether you or your readers have, you know, have ever taken that implicit racism test, but, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's very, very helpful. I mean, like I took that, you no, know, I, I think of myself as not being a racist and, you know, I, I can kind of give you a long resume of, of what a non-racist I am. And yet I take the implicit racism test and it exposes all kinds of prejudices that I hold that I didn't realize that I held. And it's very illuminating to do that. And and so I think I think in exactly the same way, it's very, very important to kind of recognize that we're deeply sinful creatures. And if we 
cannot see that with clarity, then we need to look harder. And the conversation that takes place in the church every Sunday is a conversation where we are asked to look within ourselves and and see that. If we don't do that, then it's very easy to to kind of wander off the reservation and become a truly horrible person. And, you know, not, not, not to get political, but I mean, like if, if we take Donald Trump, I mean, like, like Trump, Trump is an amoral individual who, who is quite contented to say, I've never done anything that I need to ask forgiveness for. I mean, he's literally said that, you know, I, I've never asked forgiveness for anything ever. Well, I mean, that's, that's what you turn into, I think, if you lose contact with the notion that humans are deeply sinful. And you begin to think that, well, if you want to have an affair with a porn star, that's your business. And if you want to tell a lie or, you know, fire someone or praise Nazis or whatever, there's nothing that's really wrong. Everything is either helpful to your agenda or not helpful to your agenda. But right and wrong are not real categories. And and I think if we live in a world where we don't think of wrongness as being a real temptation and a fundamental reality that's sucking us all the time in its direction, then I think we are going to be terrible human beings. My last question is, there does seem to be something worth mourning about losing, in a sense, the historical Adam, losing that Eden and the fall, losing that picture of, yeah, like the universe is is really just benevolent through and through until humans sinned. And but here's the solution to that. And so it's really not so bad as it seems uh, there. <sighs> Instead, we get this murkier picture of like billions of years of animal death and cell death, you know, uh, quite high levels of suffering for at least a hundred million years. There's something worth mourning, isn't there? I mean, we should allow ourselves to mourn that. Obviously, like God is okay with however the universe actually is. And there is a way forward for us in our faith and our relationship with God to, to acknowledge it as it is, but we can mourn a little bit, right? That's one of those things where I, I want to say sort of yes and no, I mean, it, it, yes, yes, in the sense that that was the story that in many ways built much of Western civilization and, and the large number of hospitals and orphanages and food kitchens and so on that exists because of that story. We certainly have to ask ourselves whether a world without that story is going to be a better one or not. But, you know, as I mentioned we, we, we've got these issues of the relentless patriarchy and there's this kind of dark underbelly to that story that serves the interests of a kind of male superiority and heteronormativity. And there are a lot of people that were oppressed by that story along the way. And yeah, I mean, would we have had Hitler if we didn't have Christianity? You know, I mean, it's, hard to see how absent, you know, Luther and his anti-Semitism, Germany would have turned into what it turned into. I mean, all those slave owners quoting the Bible and, and so on. So I mean, it's, it's, it's like so many things that if there was a way to kind of distill out the wonder and discard the dross, then yes, it's a beautiful story and losing it is terrible. But if we're going to keep the whole thing, 
then it kind of depends on where you are in society, whether that's good or not. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your time today for this nice long conversation. So much in here to chew on, so much interesting. And I just, I appreciate your time. Sure. It was a great conversation. Okay, so in the show notes, I've got a link to Carl's book as well as that Barna data that I mentioned at the top about pastor's views. And, you know, we didn't do a Patreon ad. I skipped it. You didn't have to listen to that. But let me just remind you, so many of those questions today were asked by patrons. This is one of the benefits is I often will come to the Facebook group, which is patron only, and I will say, hey, does anybody have any ideas? I'm going to interview a person like this. What do you want me to ask them? And I'll get incredible stuff. I got incredible stuff this time. It made a better conversation. So also, I want to thank everybody who did participate in that and, and writing some of those questions. Um, the normal stuff I say at the end here is to become a patron, patreon.com slash Coke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. And you can email me with whatever you want. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Um, and this today's conversation was edited by Joe Diaz Romero. Thank you so much for your help, dude. And yeah, I think that's it. Uh, we'll see you guys in a week or two, hopefully next week. Um, and this will just be a kind of a bonus to, to throw this in what is normally the every other week schedule. See ya. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Hold up. 